episode 42 where we always discuss the latest nebraska issues i'm stephanie and here with me today are april and melody how's it going ladies hello i'm, I'm cold, I'm freaking cold. <laughs> why i mean it's not like it's not two degrees outside <laughs> I, I was talking to my daughter today and i was like well i'm not sure if it was after the third or fourth snowing that i decided i'm done with it but i'm done now like I overheated it is so cold that I overheated when I was shoveling I had so many layers on and then I came in and like under my boobs were just drenched in boob sweat it was (laughs) that did not happen to me this time last storm it did this time I was just like my face hurts why do we live where my face hurts right I mean the snow thankfully was lighter this time than last time it was like fluffy but it kept on like flying up into my face when I was trying to like get it to go somewhere else you know yeah I am so I know people have all kinds of opinions about sport ball of all types and you know maybe people are fans maybe they're not and no judgment you know people can like sport ball I'm judging that's fine people can judge sport ball I I don't care but but I find it to be such a statement of our culture that as we're recording this podcast, basically all of the arts and humanities are shut down, but we are spending massive amounts of healthcare resources, mm-hmm. um, testing resources, yep. to make sure that this very heteronormative, violent, masculine sport ball can take place. And I find that really that the fact we even have healthcare workers set aside for sport ball injuries while we know like we spent the holidays with people there weren't enough beds and people couldn't get surgeries they needed but yet we had healthcare workers for sport ball Hmm. um and I think that says something about our culture but I hope people who like sport ball enjoy it because, you know, life is short and I want everyone to find as much joy as they can. But I, I think it's a statement of our culture, the lengths we went to to procure that joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when all the testing was so short and yet every major sport was still going on and it's still the, the masks and everything that they have. And we don't even have them in, you know, schools. Oh my gosh. I remember going to the University of Lincoln and there's like a special dorm where the athletes eat and it is so fancy. Like they are cutting prime rib where in Abel Hall, we were eating cold pizza from Valentino's. I was like, what is happening here? We all pay the same tuition. Why do they, I mean, I don't even like prime rib, but also I know it's expensive. So that just wasn't, it, it just says a lot about our culture and what we value. Um, 
you know, that the art Broadway, we're not, we didn't figure way, ways to bring that kind of stuff back. Well, because there's not enough lobbying money behind it to say, we have to open, we have to have yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. sports gets told, well, it's outside. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. Yeah, they do these, except they go to these extreme links to quarantine them as they, sh- you know, should if you're going to have people together. But maybe they just don't have to be together. Yeah. I'm just, don't love sports ball anytime. COVID does not change that. <laughs> well, fair enough. Fair and enough. full disclosure, I was a tutor for the athletic department at the university <laughs> when I was in college, so um they anyway. often they they usually need that and they they do get special tutors um okay so i do have a April, question what oh what's your question Stephanie? i was gonna ask what what fun things you've done this week mm. before we get to our super fantastic guest april guest um fun things <laughs> thing. <laughs> something t- tasty food Yes, Stephanie gave me a code for a free HelloFresh box. So I just had to pay the shipping or whatever, which was way affordable. And uh, it's been delicious. We had some Thai coconut curry last night. And tonight was pork sausage cottage pie. Kind of like a shepherd's pie, but with pork sausage in it. Oh my God, it's so good. We have some shrimp tacos coming up. Well, I don't want to like make you feel bad, um, but I fed my family powdered soup that comes in like a paper packet, and then we mm. dumped canned canned corn in it. So Yum. I don't want to try to like outdo you or anything, but that's that's how I love my family in the kitchen. <laughs> the one thing I've noticed about these meals is that they are not because I tried another box service. Um, Hungry Root was the other one I tried because they have lots of gluten-free options and dairy-free options. Um, and so it'll be like, okay, this is two servings. I'm like, great, I'll eat it. And then later I'll be like, that was a really big two servings or something, which is fine. But then like, it's a heavy calories. <laughs> I'm like, mm, still feel like these oh. are terribly. I'm a big proponent of local food and patronizing local places, but I definitely needed a few weeks of my life where I didn't have to make a lot of decisions. Like I didn't have to make sure I had all the ingredients and I didn't have to make all the decisions because I am decisioned out. Like I cannot make any more decisions right now. It's like deciding where to put more snow. I can't handle that either. (laughs) The snow is so powdery. It just like blows back from wherever I put it. Yeah, and she's not kidding. She's not kidding listeners because I drive to her house every day to drop off and pick up a kid and there's no parking spot <laughs> there's no I'm like where is it supposed to go it's taller than I am um anyway so um, I, well, I gotta tell you my most oh, my most fun thing of the week though <laughs> my boyfriend watched Anne of Green Gables which was like a Canadian Movie special, or the series the the special from 1985 and mm. um strangely enough he is cracking up because he thinks the way that they're talking is so ridiculous but he's still enjoying watching it the same as when I watch like a Marvel comic action movie and I think it's so ridiculous but I kind of like the storyline so I enjoy watching it but for a different reason than him and it's like a really nice just suppose of like um that so that's what I did this week it was fantastic you're talking about the original Megan Fellows version uh-huh. of course. oh god I loved those I've seen mm-hmm. those so many 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 times mm-hmm. as a kid mm-hmm. I'm so old they were on double VHS mm-hmm 
Mm-hmm. I still have those. I don't have a VHS players, but if I did, I would watch it. Side note: the Netflix- my mom does. My my mom will let you come to her house and use her VHS. Player. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be happy to have a friend come by. <laughs> now I'll tell you, the Netflix reboot is a really good series. It's different, um, but it's really good, and the actress is really good too. Great. Well, I have to say, in regards to decisions. Um, so April was telling me earlier that there is a dispute among the top epidemiologists in the nation. One thinks we should stop giving people their second vaccine and just get more people in the first vaccine. And the other one thinks, no, we have to keep giving everyone their second vaccine and just make more vaccine and just try to keep going that way. Mm -hmm. And as she was telling me this, all I could think was this deep, deep relief that actual scientists are going to be duking it out with science swords and they're (laughs) going to make a decision and they're going to give some guidance based on science. And unlike literally everything else we have to do in this pandemic, it's not going to be left on an individual's shoulders to decide. It's just going to be decided by people who are smarter than me. And I am so relieved because I'm just taxed out from going like, is it safe to go to my mom's house or not? Mm-hmm. Is it safe to go to the playground if other kids are there is, or not? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I want actual guidance from scientists. I'm tired of making all these decisions myself. Right. And so actually, in, that was a really interesting thing that I shared because um, the truth was that the, the, the three vaccines we have approved right now are like 70 some, 60 some, 50% effective with just one dose. And the Dr. Osterholm who was arguing that we should just focus on getting first doses in because we don't have enough to do two, um, is that he really thinks that the darkest of dark days are coming yet to come, I should say. That this UK variant is so much more contagious that we've got to put in even those first doses just to cut the numbers because UK is seeing twice the numbers that we saw at the height of our pandemic. And if we copy that, I mean, we were already almost rationing care. We would most definitely be rationing care if we followed in their footsteps. Well, on that delightful note, <laughs> I- <laughs> I'm full of them, just keep me around. Um. Uh, Stephanie, I think you should introduce our next guest who is coming to talk to us about prisons. And this is getting people out of prisons. It couldn't come at, you know, a more important time. So tonight we have two guests with us. First, we have Cassie Lotman. She joins us as an organizer working to mobilize opposition to Nebraska constructing a new state prison and with a background in other organizing efforts from housing justice to street safety. We also have Julia Schleck, a fellow Seeing Red contributor and past volunteer at the Nebraska State Penitentiary. Welcome, ladies. Thanks. Great to join you. Always good to be on the pod. Thanks, Stephanie. We're happy to have you. Well, so I know we're talking about prisons today, but I want to know just a little bit about you, Cassie. So you're new to the pod. It's your first time visiting. And we just always like to know, like, 
who are you? How did you end up being the kind of person that a political podcast would want to bring on as a guest? Like, what was your journey? Um, are you from Nebraska? Just the, I'll let you kind of talk off the cuff. Like, who are you and where did you come from? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, and I'm glad you explained the question because when you told me about it earlier, I was like, I don't know, I clicked the Zoom link. That's how I got here in this call. Um, but I grew up in Nebraska in a small town called Diller, uh, population like 260 or so. Um, and my parents and my whole family was really civically engaged. They were on all of the committees and there was a surprising number of committees and social clubs in a town that small. Um, they helped plan the annual festival in town, the Diller Picnic, and helped with fundraising for the foundation and all of those things. And so I really got an appreciation early on of uh, being involved in the community and what that means and how important that is, and also going to meetings. Uh, a lot of the organizing I do involves sitting in meetings and doing stuff that most people would find extremely boring. Um, but I kind of thrive on that stuff sometimes. Um, I got involved in uh, progressive advocacy in college and um, got involved through some of the like nonprofits and advocacy organizations that would have calls to action. Uh, Medicaid expansion was one of the first things that I was involved with testifying at the legislature or were demonstrating at the legislature in support of Medicaid expansion. Um, after the 2016 election, I was pretty involved in leading Indivisible Lincoln, which uh, mobilized people to write to their state, their state senators and congresspeople and visit offices. For a while, we were doing office visits every single week to try to oppose the Trump agenda. Um, that was fun, and I made a lot of really good connections there, but it was also extremely disheartening. And over time, my focus has gotten narrower and narrower. Um, I shifted to more state level advocacy after that and then city level advocacy. And then at one point I advocated for the street that is just down the block from my house and making it safer. And that was actually the, uh, the best organizing uh, experience I ever had of trying to make that street safer and prevent a plan that would stop a plan from going forward that would make that street safer. And we won. Um, a ton of people showed up and testified at city council and was so convincing that the city council member who had introduced the resolution we were trying to oppose voted against his own resolution. And that felt really good. So, yeah. It's incredible. I, uh, I've gotten involved in other things and that's why I'm here today. Can I ask, was that the, uh, the, the bike path that was supposed to go through and that there was a big movement against it? Yeah, so it was the bike path and the lane reduction on 13th Street in Lincoln. Well, thank you personally for your advocacy then. As someone who lives in Lincoln without a car and just rides her bike everywhere, I was really excited about that lane and couldn't believe that there was a, a whole organized movement against it for reasons that I'm sure you know, since you were apparently really successful at convincing everyone how great this would be. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I love seeing people out using that bike lane. Yeah, not Gosh. so much right now, but <laughs> right, right. You're... I mean, you, you say that, but I bought a bike this morning, so <laughs> I'm, I'm dreaming from, of the warm weather. 
Well, let me recommend studded tires. We'll let you ride Fantastic. all winter. <laughs> Um, that is totally um, a story after my own heart. I love that you, I love the trend of getting narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower to where you can actually be effective in your literal neighborhood and how important that is. And I think that's how a lot of people, I think that's how a lot of people start. You start maybe with a national organization of some type. They generally have the best um, marketing because they have the most marketing dollars, marketing staff. And so it's easier for people to find them. And then you meet actual people that live in your actual space that are interested in the same things you do. And then you just, you branch away from those national orgs and just get more local. I think that's pretty, pretty, um, typical path and that's cool. Yeah, definitely something I'm evolving towards in my activism is, going to places where I see a need that's not being met. So with 13th Street, I wasn't seeing any advocacy for people who actually lived here. A lot of the opposition was coming from people who lived in other parts of Lincoln saying this would make their lives better getting through my neighborhood as, as a way to get from place to place. Um, and you weren't hearing the voices of people who actually live in this area or who wanted to use the streets in other ways. Um, and it's the same thing with the Snow New Prisons campaign People have been talking about um, building this new prison for about the last year, but I hadn't seen a lot of other organizers who are really trying to draw attention to this. And every time there was new information, getting that information out, reiterating why the prison isn't the right thing to do. And so I got together with some other folks and tried to kind of fill that gap. And I think we will see some more institutional response. The ACLU is gonna get involved, for example, um, and has released some statements about it earlier on, um, but really coming in from the grassroots, trying to affect what we can on this issue um, is where I'm at today. Well, I can't wait to hear everything that is in your brain and like hear it all splayed out. I have so many questions and I think we all do. We've been, we this comes up on the pod every now and then and we've just been looking for who is the expert that knows and can tell us things because, you know, it's not us. Uh, so I wanted to ask, okay, so we're all on the same page. Why is there a prison crisis? Like we know the prisons are overcrowded. Anybody who even kind of follows along in politics, it's been years, they've been overcrowded. The ACLU has sued the state. There's just been nationally, we people are looking at Nebraska as a problem state. Uh, like, why does this happen? Like, what is going on? So I think it's a- I was just gonna say broadly, I'm sorry, Cassie. <laughs> no, go ahead, Julia. If we could frame the problems in Nebraska, like as part of a national issue in the United States, right? Like what is the, the stat, Cassie, you may know this, that the United States is first in the world or are we second? I think we might even be first in terms of incarcerated people per, you know, 100,000, that we incarcerate a larger amount of our population than pretty much every any other country in the world. And that's a more recent development um, in U.S. history. And so the question is like, why are we trying to solve all our social problems by putting people in prison? Because we're imprisoning an ever larger percentage of our population, which indicates that, you know, we're handling issues that probably should be handled in some other way by just throwing people in prison. 
That's exactly right, Julia. This is definitely part of a larger trend. And Nebraska is one of the worst states in terms of overcrowding. But uh, we, like many other, nearly all U.S. states, are incarcerating more and more people all the time. Felony convictions are going up in Nebraska. Um, and we're, we're not doing much to get people out of prison. Um, the United States overall tends to have really long sentences compared to other developed nations or really other nations at all because other nations can't afford to keep people in prison for that long, I would say. Um, but in the U.S., we're content to give people sentences to the rest of their life for 20 years instead of four for low-level sentences. And so that's definitely contributing to the problem. And that's something that the legislature in Nebraska has had the opportunity to fix. They were given some recommendations in 2015 by the Justice Center of the Council of State Governments um, on different ways to do sentencing reform or to reduce the numbers of people we were incarcerating. And the legislature really watered down those recommendations. They signed some of them into law, but others of them, they failed to incorporate it all into their plan. And so overcrowding hasn't slowed down. And in fact, it continues to get worse. And so many of those nonviolent offenses in Nebraska still carry 20-year max sentences instead of four-year maxes that that original plan in 2015 recommended. Yeah, Cassie, do you know what the um, actual crime rates are in Nebraska? Because I've often seen kind of statistics from other cities that I've lived in where although the hysteria around crime like on the media and um, in the kind of political discourse had increased certainly over like the 80s and 90s and the actual crime rates were at the same time going down and so it's the overcrowding as the result of the longer and longer sentences that people were demanding in response to this kind of manufactured hysteria over crime and not actually the data on on the actual number of crimes committed or their severity. Is that, do you know if that's playing a role at all in Nebraska? Do you know anything about the state crime rates or, or local? I wish I knew the exact figures for Nebraska, but I think that is definitely um, playing a factor, playing a role here too. It's definitely true that crime is, is going down. We are a lot safer as a society than we were years ago. And it's, it's definitely hysteria, just like you said, um, where, where people perceive that crime is getting worse, even though it's not. And it seems like that's actually a really critical question to be asking is like, who, who is driving that discourse and who benefits from it, right? Like, and that, that's part of what asks me to, like leads me to ask some questions about proposals about expanding the number or the capacity of the prisons we have rather than asking how could we be generating fewer prisoners right you know like so it it seems like we're going about this in a backwards way but there's been you know there there are so many states in where uh prisons are turned over to private companies to build, to staff, to run, right? You know, like running prisons and other kinds of detention centers has become a real industry. And so, you know, it seems worth following up on questions when this happens in, you know, in our area, like who, who benefits from expanding the prison system rather than uh, asking how we might lower the amount of people going into it. 
So I have a I have an answer about violent crimes in the Nebraska firearm report put out by Nebraskans Against Gun Violence. We actually tracked all of the homicide data for between 2008 and 2018, so 11 years, and the numbers of people who killed someone, right? The number of actual people who died and multiple people might have been killed by the same person. So this does not mean the number of murderers, but the number of people who died is like half. So in an 11 year period. So if you look at the data, it's pretty, it's compelling and it backs up what you're saying. One of the most violent crimes you could commit, right? Taking another person's life, uh, we see those numbers decreasing, not increasing. Yeah, and something I want to point out here is that there's a popular narrative that that our incarceration rates are going up because of drug crimes. It's just the war on drugs. And that's not entirely true, at least not when you're talking about state prisons. It definitely is a factor when you're talking about federal jails and prisons. Um, But at the county and the state level, most of the people in prison are there for violent crimes. And in my volunteering work with the prison, most of the people that I encounter have done some sort of violent crime. Um, just looking up some, some stats, and as of 2016, only 15% of people in state prisons were considered to be there for nonviolent drug offenses. So it really is a problem of violent crime as well as uh, nonviolent drug crimes that's leading to these incarceration rates. But even there, we need to talk about what are the causes of, of these issues why are so many people turning to violence in their lives to solve their problems? And how can we address that issue? Because obviously incarcerating more and more people isn't fixing the problem if it just continues to get worse and worse. So what can we do instead to transform our society so that we don't need to lock people up? We can give people the tools to solve their problems in other ways. Exactly. That's exactly what Seeing Red, we totally believe in that progressive what kind of social safety nets um, and things can we put in place. And that's why we're always pushing. <laughs> yeah, it seems like this is a complicated question. Um, you know, like that Cassie asked, right? Like what causes people to turn to violence to solve their problems? And um, and we definitely highlight like one aspect of that, which are material conditions, right? You know, when people get, when you when you have to wonder how you're going to pay your rent, when you have to choose between necessary prescriptions and um, keeping the lights on. I mean, like those kinds of things, you know, when you're, you're looking at declaring, you know, like bankruptcy or you have some like staggering, like just unsurmountable amount of debt, whether that's medical debt or, or student debt or just credit cards, then, you know, like those are all incredible stressors. There's stressors on families and the stressors on individuals and people start feeling trapped and angry. And so that's, that's surely kind of playing some role, but it seems like this is something that should be taken, like that, that there, people should be studying it and putting money into fixing the problem, right? And because it's got to have like multiple solutions to it. Uh, and I feel like our resources would be better spent kind of asking that question, finding those answers, and then working on solving those. And 
one of the things that I, I know is a bit of an issue, um, Cassie, that you were mentioning before we we went on, um, is recidivism. And so uh, it sounds like some of the the volunteering you do helps people to try to like make the transition successfully back to the outside world after they spent some time uh, inside. And so I, I don't know if could you like you know for for the pod listeners tell us a little about that again. It seems like a really great volunteer opportunity. Yeah. So something that I do as a volunteer outside of COVID times since the pandemic started, I haven't been working on it too much, um, is volunteering as an at-large sponsor for community corrections. And it's complicated to explain because first, you might not be familiar with the community corrections facilities in Nebraska. There are several of them. I I know at least one in Omaha and one in Lincoln. Um, There might be one somewhere else, but I'm not sure on that. Um, and these are facilities where you're still in prison, but you have a little bit fewer restrictions on what you can do. You can leave the prison facility to go on work release. Um, you can go look for jobs before you've found a job to go on work release. Um, you can go worship, go to worship services out in the community. And there's a lot of churches that have prison ministry programs where they coordinate picking people up and taking them to worship services. Um, And you can also do things like go on personal needs passes, um, which is where I come in. Um, And these personal needs passes might be doing things like going to the DMV to get your driver's license renewed because you're gonna need a driver's license when you're out or because you need it for job applications. Um, It might be going to get personal needs supplies um, at a department store or usually a big box store like Walmart um, or going to a a thrift store like Bridges to Hope, which offers um, consignment clothing and even furniture once you've been released to folks who are leaving incarceration. Not everyone who's at community corrections has those privileges to have fewer restrictions and go out in the community. But generally that's the idea of the community corrections centers is that you're working towards those fewer restrictions and getting to the end of your sentence. So what I do is I'm a sponsor for these passes. So my name and phone number is on a list and people who are in prison can call me up on my cell phone and say, hey, I need to go to this place at this time, can you take me? Um, I've taken people to Walmart quite a few times to Bridges to Hope. I've taken someone to SCC to help them register for classes. And I I sat and waited while they took some sort of placement test um, and then then took them back. And it's been a really great way to connect with people while helping them meet a need that they have. Because without a sponsor, um, a lot of these people wouldn't be leaving the facility at all. And sometimes the things that they needed to do are connected to their release requirements. So you have to get a job and be successful at your job on work release in order to get on parole. So if you can't find someone to help you go get a job, then you're not going to make it. So that's really interesting. That's so you're saying there are things you have to do to get out of prison. And here's, you know, to come back to the original problem, we have too many people in our prisons. They are filled to the gills. They are not safe. They are fire hazards. They're dangerous for the incarcerated. They're dangerous for the staff. We need people to get out 
of the prisons. We that we need that. That's got to happen. But we have barriers in place where people who should be able to get out can't get out. And it sounds like there's not a real push to fix those problems, aside from hoping do-gooders show up, right? And like do good. Um but there's not, it's not institutionally built in to help people get out when they've served their time. Um, what are some other barriers to getting people out of prison, right? So it sounds like they have to, there's release requirements that they're not meeting because they can't. Are there other things that keep people in prison longer than they were originally destined to be? Well, uh, in March of last year, so 2020, we found out that 187 inmates had their stays extended because their good time was miscalculated. Um, the overstays ranged from 15 days, so fairly short, but substantial if, if that's 15 days of freedom that you didn't get to have, all the way to 180 days of prison time that people were kept in jail past the time that they should have been there based on their good time calculation that the state had agreed to with their sentence. That's one. You know, it would appear that Franks isn't terribly competent or his department with paperwork or keeping track of most anything. I know that he is mandated by the state legislature to turn in biannual reports about statistical populations in our system. And I think over the last four years, he's turned in one or two, but he just doesn't do the things that he's supposed to or apparently do any of them correctly. I'm not a fan in case anyone was wondering. Yeah, and the, the parole board that decides when people get to go on parole approves individual case by case, whether you get to leave prison and, and start the parole part of your hearing. That's actually a separate department from the Department of Corrections under Frakes, uh, but they don't seem to be doing any better. Mm -mm. The parole approvals have fallen by 29% over the past three years after a peak in 2015, uh, or 2015 to 2016, the fiscal year, if you want to be specific about it. And it's not super clear why. Um, Danielle Conrad at the ACLU has said that it appears to be business as usual at the parole board, even though this was last summer as the pandemic was raging and the parole board declined to do anything different than their usual procedures to get people home and out of the prisons where COVID was a pretty serious risk and you might say a, a cruel and unusual risk over and above what people expect to face when they are incarcerated for a crime. Mm -hmm. sure. Real quick, didn't we also have LB1004 last year that the legislature passed that would impact um, eligibility for, of parole that the governor then vetoed? Am I remembering this all correctly? I don't remember that, but it sounds like sure something he would do. I'm pretty I know sure that Lathrop brought that bill. I know they're bringing it back, but the governor vetoed it after there was nothing that the body could do because he did that on several things. Mm -hmm. I know that in June of last year, so June 2020, mid-pandemic, one in seven inmates in the prison system were eligible for parole but hadn't been approved for release. So they were eligible but they were still in prison. And the parole one officials- in seven? One in seven. That's huge. That's and that's, that's over 800 people at that time. And this was in the same report where they were saying, you know, it's business as usual, we're doing what we've always done. Um, 
they're so, so for that like that's 14 percent and we're over capacity by approximately how much oh i should know that but i'm not sure i mean it's at least 14 percent if not higher i think it's closer to like 68 but that would get us closer um so it sounds like there's a lot of things that we could be doing that we just straight up refuse to do. We're not offering the programs that people are required as part of the release. We're not offering them the tools to complete things that are required for their release. Um, we're just simply not paroling people that are eligible for parole for no perceivable reason. Um, so we know that that's going on. Those are all things people could push on for sure. So it seems like the state, their solution, and this is, I think, always what their solution was. And I do not think that the people in charge were operating in good faith. I don't think the governor was operating good good faith and that people who are in leadership decisions in the prison reform work at the state level, not the activist level, but the state like worker bee level, I don't think they're operating in good faith either to actually deal with the overcrowding. So what they want is a new prison. They want a new fancy prison, but it costs a lot of money. And that's a big thing because the state doesn't have any money. I'm, I'm, curious how, I'm, I'm sorry, Melody. I'm curious how they're going to staff it since one of the big challenges that, you know, you observe uh, if, it, you spend any time, um, you know, in, in any of the prisons. So it's a real challenge to find people um, who can work there and who, who work there long enough to kind of know and be comfortable with the, you know, all of all of the complicated policies and procedures that go on in that particular workspace, right? So it's, uh, the, the turnover rate is quite high and the, it, you know, the, it, it's very difficult for, for, the, the Nebraska DOC to, to actually get people to sign up for those jobs and especially to stay. And so it, it, having more stable staffing and staffing numbers would really help in terms of, uh, you know, some of the programming issues that you mentioned and, uh, and, and, and some other challenges in terms of running the, the institutions. And so, you know, like knowing that that's already something that you know we we struggle to do uh like how how are we going to find the people to staff an entirely additional institution one thing that i recently found out that i was unaware of is that they uh pay people from the time they get on a bus in omaha and drive them down to Tecumseh to staff it and then pay them all the way home. So they're paying for a bus and transportation and an hour of transport to and from just to get Tecumseh staffed, which I had no idea about. Um, and they still struggle with staffing. I mean, all the time. It's unbelievable. And it, uh, the prisons before COVID were at 165% of capacity. Um, they think it's probably closer to about 150% currently, but those numbers aren't um, published or known. They haven't um, provided them yet. So 165% of capacity. So, Cassie, where is this money going to come from? What are they, you're following along, you're kind of in the guts of it all. Where, where, do they, where are they saying this money is going to come from? And these people and all of it. 
no one's saying where the people are going to come from. Um, they're talking about putting the prison somewhere maybe in between Lincoln or Omaha. They don't think the Lincoln area alone has enough people who are willing to work at the prison to staff this new facility. So it probably won't be in Lincoln. It might be somewhere in between Lincoln and Omaha, um, but they don't want to put it somewhere with no people entirely. Um, and Waverly, Ashland, and Wahoo have all already said that they don't want it there. Um, so there's not a ton of options there. Um, it might go closer to Omaha somewhere um, so that they can draw staffing from there. Um, Tecumseh officials, when this prison was talking and, and they're circulating the question of where are we gonna build this, um, people who are active in government in Tecumseh have kind of put out a warning and said, you need to be really careful about having this prison in your town because the prison creates expenses for the host county that the state does not reimburse. So that's things like public defenders for inmates, autopsies for prisoners who die. Uh, Johnson County budgets $20,000 in local tax dollars every year for expenses related to the Tecumseh prison. And the um, state, the state doesn't pay that? Nope, because those are expenses incurred by the county apparently because people within the county have, have died or needed public defenders. That's really shocking because Tecumseh is not like a booming economy. Yep. Wow, I have no idea about that. So it's definitely something uh, that people need to watch out for. Sarpy County is another one that has said we don't, they don't want it in Sarpy County. Um, so staffing is a really open question. Um, as far as where the money is coming from, the legislature's appropriations committee will advance an appropriations bill that allocates the money. And it'll probably come from the general fund or what you might call the rainy day fund. So it's money coming out of, you know, anything else that we could spend it on, we're not going to have anymore. Um, so a lot of senators are coming out as um, opposed or concerned about the plan because they talk a lot about property tax relief. And, and this is gonna get in the way of uh, reducing taxes because this is a huge sum of money. The construction costs alone are going to be $230 million spread over the next four and a half years. And then every year after that, we're gonna pay another $34 million just to operate this prison. So I don't know, think about what programs you'd like to see in your community that you think might make it a better place to live and imagine how much money, how, how much good you could do with $34 million a year or $230 million in the next four and a half years. That goes a long ways. And instead we're using it to do something that has really no benefits for our society. Well, and I think it's important to for people to know where we currently spend the majority of our state money is we spend them on schools, which we know are massively underfunded. And then we also spend the money on um, state services for children's welfare. And so we just had Monica Gross on a couple of weeks ago. And if you haven't listened to that episode, you should. And she walked through kind of how that money works and that the current contract we're in after we move to a Kansas state 
nonprofit, they said it would be 40% less. Now they're 40% short, but because of all the brouhaha, they're actually going to need like 60% more money and we don't have it. But so, so that money is going to come from schools and children's services. That's the bottom line. That is what I'm wrapping up here in a present. If we don't have the money, we'll have to make cuts. And the only places to cut will be schools and children's services, which schools and those really do relate together. So um, it's always the children. It's always the children who will be cut because they have, they're vulnerable and they have no real voice. So what if we took some portion of that money and worked it into successfully kind of reintegrating people that we released from the prison back into the community and into programs that would try to lower the amount of people that are going into it or back into it in the first place. I mean, like, it seems like those would make our communities better places to live from the get-go and save some of that money uh, for, for the children and you know, for our schools and, and our services, you know, all of those things would enrich the community in a way that simply kind of uh, just increasing the number of prisoners would not. Yeah, and, you know, when you talk about services for people who are coming back to the community after spending time in prison and helping them reintegrate to the community, that is huge. And it would also help if we took some of that money and use it on those services instead of policing people's behavior once they're on parole, because parole restrictions are really, really strict. I talked to a guy once who I was taking on a trip as a sponsor, and he told me he was back in jail for his second sentence because he violated parole because he was riding his bicycle and he had a toolbox on his bike. And because there was some tools in the toolbox, the police officer said, oh, I know what you're doing. You're going to steal someone else's bike. And that was a violation of parole. And they sent him back to jail. Um, a pretty shockingly low amount of people, only 65% of people are considered successful at parole. And the rest go right back to prison and serve another longer sentence. Um, and those are people contributing to the prison overcrowding issue. And also just you know, serving much more time than, than the initial um, sentence called for, for really arbitrary reasons. So you're saying that it's incredibly hard to get parole and then 65% are only successful anyway. Yep, that's exactly so, so right. It's There's like, a huge so it's like the effect. state. Yeah, so the state is like, oh, we can hardly let anybody out because they can't handle it. And then the ones they let out can't handle it. Like, they're screwed on both ends. <laughs> right. And it's the, the, the state that is saying that they can't handle it by their own right. arbitrary standard. They could change right. those standards. Right. You know, I've, I've talked to people who uh, got sent back to prison because they were taking a night class. And the night class ran over one night and they had to choose between staying in class at, at their college class or getting back home in time for curfew and they made the wrong choice and someone was paying attention and they got sent back to prison for another year several years because of that and that, that's not keeping anyone safe right so these stories wrap this up well okay i almost want to wrap this up in a bow for context so you're saying 
once you've already been to jail, serve some time in prison, you get home a little bit too late, you get a year in prison. Um, immediate. There's no new trial. There's no judge. There's no lawyers. It's just boom. Here you go. Off you go. You're all done. Meanwhile, and we also, of course, you know, we haven't talked about this, but we know there is a disproportionate number of black men specifically in our prisons compared to their rate in the population. So we know we're over-policing black people, people of color generally. Um, and then on the other hand, I just want to tie this back to current events so people can really understand how awful it is of what you're saying is when James Skurlock was murdered in cold blood in Omaha, they did not arrest him. They did not even wait a heartbeat to see, just like investigate it a little bit to decide if they thought it was murder or not, nothing. They just literally sent him home and they're like, you're cool, dude. We know for sure you just killed a guy, but like, you're fine. Head on home, head on home. But meanwhile, these people who are doing all the things they're supposed to be doing, they break these minor infractions, you're in jail. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a really impossible system, but only for some people. You know, there's huge racial effects in terms of Black people are overrepresented in the prison population. And it's not because they're doing more crime. They are policed more um, and they are uh, treated with uh, very different standards than white, especially white men. And this is a socioeconomic issue too, right? You know, if you're poor, then you're much more likely to end up caught in the system than if you are upper middle class and afford a good lawyer or know how the system works. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what are the solutions here? What, you know, we know building a new prison, that's not great. And we know surely, um, the people who want these kinds of things, they're very good at gaslighting the public into thinking they're good things. Um, and we know there are a million reasons we don't need a new prison. Like what, what are some other things that we could be trying? So parole reform and sentencing reforms are the top two things I think that we need to be looking at. Um, and there's, a lot out there. Um, Nebraska for Prison Reform, Nebraskans for Prison Reform is a great group that has a policy proposal and, and a whole list of reforms that they would love to see in Nebraska. And I think that is a great place for folks to look if they want to dive in on what are some of the solutions that we could be trying. Um, but it, it really comes down to we need to incarcerate people for less time because we're not any more safe because we're locking people away for long times. We're actually less safe by removing people's ties to communities, by taking away uh, moms and dads from their kids, because a lot of people in prison have children that they are separated from for the entire time they are incarcerated. And, and those relationships are really hard to repair. We're damaging generations through sentencing people to prison for a really long time. So we need to look at, at ways to just reduce incarceration in general. 
and that's the solution to overcrowding. It's not finding more humane ways to incarcerate people, it's just incarcerating people less and for less time. So there is a movement which is not about making the prisons less crowded, um, but it's about abolishing prison in general, which you know may immediately bring up thoughts, good, bad, or ugly. What could do you what do you know about that? And Julia, um, oh, I think she might have fallen off, but if she comes back, she might know something about that too. But what about that? Yeah, so prison abolition is something that I had been hearing about for the last few years, but I, I had never really got it before last summer. And so I'm going to say right off the bat, this is something that I'm still learning on. And there's a lot of people who've been thinking about this issue for way longer than me. Angela Davis has been writing on this for decades. Mariam Kaba is another great leader. There's a lot of, especially black women who are leading the abolition movement, um, who have a lot to say on this issue and have really put a lot of thought into it. Um, I started learning about abolition after the events of last summer with the racial justice uprising. Um, that really radicalized me in terms of, of seeing, oh, the, the police in Lincoln are actually just like the police that I've seen in other places. The police in Lincoln are brutalizing my friends night after night. And, oh, that, that just really flipped a switch for me in terms of thinking about defunding the police and how the police keep us safe or don't keep us safe. And from there, I wanted to learn more and joined a study group um, going through a, like a six week online study guide of different readings and videos to watch and things to listen to on prison abolition. And since then, together we have been uh, continuing to meet fairly regularly and talk things over and learn together. And when we wanted to start putting things into practice, um, that's the same group of people that I've been organizing with around opposing the new prison. Um, something that took a while for me to understand, but I think is really key to understanding prison abolition, is it is intentionally a utopian project, right? The goal is not stopping all prisons tomorrow, shut every door tomorrow, though that would probably be great um, for a lot of people who believe in pr prison abolition, but there's a lot that goes along with that. Um, it's ending the, the issue of white supremacy entirely, you know, eradicating racism and that as a cause of violence. It's eradicating the cis heteropatriarchy and that as a cause of violence and all of these asymmetrical power relations that lead to violence, abolition involves leveling out those playing fields so that our communities are safer without needing prisons. And, and that was really key to my understanding because for a while I thought, you know, this, this is pie in the sky kind of stuff and what about the murderers? And as I, as I learned more, I learned one, you know, prisons aren't keeping us safe from murderers. Anyways, murders happen. And the existence of prisons doesn't have any effect on that at all. Um, and I, I learned about the harms that prisons do to our society and that the harm doesn't just come from whatever crime happened, but, but we continue to make new harms by putting people in prison. 
I think there's one thing that you've been doing kind of all along that I want to call attention to is that you keep referring to people who are in prison as people in prisons or people who have committed crimes or people, right? And this is kind of very much in deliberate uh, opposition to the tendency that we've developed of calling people who have committed a crime and served some time in a prison criminals, right? And it turns, you know, using that particular word kind of creates a, a category that's seen as static, right? Like it's part of their identity. It never changes. It's something that separates me from them um, as compared to, you know, using the word people, right, who have committed a crime, who have spent time in prison. And I, in a way, I mean, I, I think people have a fear of uh, the idea of prison abolition or of defunding the police, right? The, what are you going to do about the murderers? Um, it, because we separate out this group, right? And we think of them as kind of um, unrecognizable monsters in some way um, that maybe we're hiding before, but eventually show that they're really monsters and then we know and then we need to kind of keep them away from everyone. But I, I'm noticing like many people might, be very sympathetic to the volunteer work that you were talking about doing in terms of sponsoring someone and helping them in terms of giving them rides to places. Um, so it have, as you know, someone who's a, a young woman who's volunteered to do this and you're picking people up from county corrections who by you know, your own definition are likely to have committed a violent crime, um, it, was there ever a moment when you thought, oh my God, you know, I'm inviting a criminal into my car? <laughs> like how, how do you get over the, that opposition in the sense and how do, you, how do we move into both individually and as a society thinking about people who commit crimes, which you know, asks, brings you to ask why and why not? And you know, how, did, how are they like us rather than how are they inalterably different? Yeah, you know, I, I get that question a fair bit, mostly from my mom, not going to lie, of like, aren't you worried about being safe? Um, and honestly, no, I'm, I'm not. I've never felt unsafe with anyone who I've given a ride to. Um, and I think that's because we have a, a shared humanity. And in that setting, you know, this is a person who has already, in most cases, done a lot of time for whatever they were in prison for. And, and sometimes I look it up, uh, but often I, I don't. And I just trust that they're there for some reason and it's really none of my business why they're in prison. Today, my business is they need to get to Walmart or they need to get to the DMV and then they need to get back. Um, and so we just meet each other as people and, and deal with where we are. Um, people nearing the end of their sentence want to go home and they want to, you know, make a good impression. Oftentimes, I think the people that I give rides to are more afraid of me than I have any reason to be or anyone would be of them because they haven't interacted with people from the outside in so long, and they want to make a good impression um, because they're people uh, who are having, you know, feelings and thoughts like I want to get a good deal on the dryer detergent, but I'm not sure, laundry detergent, you don't put detergent in the dryer, uh, but I'm not sure, you know, if I get 64 ounces, but only 60 ounces is allowed, are they going to make me throw the whole thing out? Um, they're concerned about, you know, 
where can I get a real good pair of shoes I can wear to my new job? Um, so I just meet people where I'm at, where they're at. I'm there too, I guess. Um, yeah, I've had a similar- Sorry, one more story I wanna share that I feel like really illustrates this. Um, I am no longer religious, but when I was religious, I would sometimes go to a worship service at NSP, the state penitentiary. And it was inside the prison. You'd go in through the gates and, and be screened. And then you'd walk through the yards that you, you can see from driving by into this you know, recreation building that had um, a sanctuary in it. And we'd have a church service. And I had done this a few times. And one day we were in like the first hymn and a couple guys in the back pews uh, started fighting. There was a little scuffle. And the guards swooped in right away and pepper sprayed the out of the entire room and you know calmed that situation. But I through the rest of the service felt just very taken care of by the other men who were present. Everyone was saying, are you okay? This this never happens here. We know that it's important that you're here and we want you to be here and we are going to keep you safe no matter what happens here um, because we care that you're here and we are glad that you're here. And that was just a really powerful experience of just seeing each other's humanity in a situation that could have been scary. I learned that, you know, the thing that was causing me pain in that situation didn't have anything to do with the fight. It was the pepper spray response of, that's, that's what's in my face. The, the scuffle was totally behind me. I hadn't even noticed it happening until I felt like I couldn't breathe anymore. Yeah, I have to say, as someone who has volunteered at NSP for, I don't know, many, many years now, <laughs> um, I, uh, at times, you know, go in there every week or every other week and, um, and actually in that same building as Cassie. So I, I walk through the yard down to the chapel and um, it's uh, extraordinary at how concerned the people that I'm working with there are. They, they will often kind of, you know, if they can, they walk near me just to kind of, you know, make sure I feel safe and okay. They're, they're so obviously grateful that anyone from the outside cares to come and talk to them like human beings. And, you know, we share classes and we learn things together and, um, and they, it, it's, it's obviously intensely meaningful for them, you know, not just the material, but that I'm there chatting. And, um, and so that's, that, that is something that's illustrated to me, you know, basically every time I go in there and, you know, the staff are very much looking to keep you safe at the same time. And um, it, it's, it's remarkable, actually, uh, that uh, the guys themselves kind of make it clear how important you are and how important you are to them. It's been really rewarding being a volunteer there. Are, so we keep um, talking about men. Are we seeing the same overcrowding issues in the women's prison? And it's a separate facility, correct? Or is it not? There are separate facilities for women, but at Community Corrections, um, there's facilities for both. So Community Corrections Lincoln has both men and women. Um, they, I believe, used to be in the same building. 
Um, but they built a new facility, like just down the grass from the original facility. And now the women and the men are in totally different buildings um, at community corrections. But for you know the, the regular correctional facilities, they're different buildings. The women's prison um, in Nebraska, at least the main one that I usually hear about is in New York. Yeah, you're right. It is in New York. It is in New York. Um, I was thinking it was in Tecumseh, but no, it is in New York. I just didn't, I don't know that I usually hear about them if about overcrowding in those spaces. Usually what I hear about the women's prison are the terrible, terrible medical conditions that the women face giving birth in shackles, not having menstrual products, um, not getting what they need as they're aging um, and going through menopause and, you know, just things like that is usually what I hear about them, but I haven't heard about the overcrowding. So I usually just hear about Tecumseh. So I didn't know if that was happening in the women's prison also. Julia, do you have any numbers on that? I, I think you're right that that's usually how it's messaged is that it's it's on the, the men's prison side. Um, and it's not just to come so I know NSP has a problem too, as well as just like the men's facilities overall are overcrowded. Yeah, that's that's also what I know about it is then we're, when we're discussing overcrowding, it's Tecumseh and NSP that, that come up in the discussion. Um, that doesn't mean that York isn't also um, having issues, but at least in terms of the press coverage that we've focused on the men's prisons. That makes sense. That might be something we look into in the future. If listeners, if you have this information, pass it along <laughs> because we don't know and we're all trying to learn together. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you said, um, Cassie, you, you talked about you were in a small group and you started with a book and you it was like a collaborative or maybe a facilitator and you went through some a small program and now you are on a whole new path in life. <laughs> so, so that's, that seems like a summary of what you said, so, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, okay. You're, you're not exactly wrong. Uh, I don't know about a whole new path in life, but it definitely uh, kind of shifted organizing focuses. At least this is what I'm working on now. I'm still definitely working on housing issues but this study group definitely changed my perspective on life and seeing abolition and the prison issue in an entirely new way, even though I'd been volunteering with the prisons for years. How do you find this study group? Um, it was being hosted by people who I'd done other organizing with, a mutual aid group called the Dandelion Network. Oh, um, nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, real, real rad group of folks. Um, the Dandelion Network originally formed uh, under the heading of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. Um, so trying to educate ourselves on how we prepare ourselves and our communities to respond to disasters. And some of that is natural disasters. We've looked into things like how can we, you know, prepare ourselves for if there's a big tornado. Um, the Dandelion Network mobilized after the flooding of 2018 or 19, when there were those big floods, to try to get supplies um, and an organization to people who had been affected by the flooding, especially in Fremont. Um, 
And right now the Dandelion Network is uh, still out there, still going strong, but the folks in it are very plugged into other grassroots organizing efforts in the community. And so it's operating kind of as a hub for a lot of distributed organizing efforts. And the abolition study group was organized through that Dandelion Network group um, and, and kind of grew out of that just from people who were interested, who wanted to join in the learning and then the practice of what we were learning. So was there a facilitator or was it somebody who was like, I want to learn more about this. So I think we should, if anybody wants to read it with me, let's all, we're going to do a thing. So it was a little of both. There was a, a facilitator, but the facilitator was also learning. Um, and the, the study guide materials are online, um, abolitionjournal.org slash study guide. It's called, if you're new to abolition, study group guide. Um, and it's got six weeks, a ton of great readings on different aspects of abolition. I definitely recommend people checking that out. Um, and from there, I've done a lot of other readings too. There's a ton of different ways to dive in and learn more about this subject. And it just a huge wealth of resources out there for it. Um, and even in terms of learning about the new prison construction, I started a couple months ago having heard every once in a while there would be a news article about the new prison, but I wasn't really sure what the status on that was or if people were going to try to oppose it, who would they even talk to about that? Um, and I just sat down and started going through and, and reading a lot of the different news articles that had been published over the last year and put together a document kind of summarizing my research. And I shared that with the group that I had been talking about abolition with and said, do you, do you think this is something that we might want to organize around? And that's really how it started. Um, so I, I think people who are listening who might say, well, I don't have any of this special expertise, you know, you should feel encouraged by the fact that you can develop expertise and you can learn about what issues are affecting your community. And I'm not saying, you know, take a six week course and go out and call your, yourself an abolition expert or an expert on anything. And I'm not that, but I'm someone who knows more than I did when I started. And I know enough that I can recognize something in my community that could be otherwise, and I can advocate for that new reality. Oh, that's so powerful. I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you had a free minute, we would love a write-up of all the resources and we could post it on Seeing Red to live in perpetuity for people to access. It's like maybe more important than just a general show notes link. So if you have a minute in your life, just it's an open invitation. We will just publish whatever you send us. We can totally put something together for that. Sounds great. Fabulous. Um, okay, so we like to end every interview with two questions. So um, I'll ask the first one and then April, you can ask the second one. So what advice, and maybe you already answered this, but if you have new advice, you know, just say it. What advice would you give to anyone looking to make a difference in their community? So I think where I want to go with this advice is find other people who want to make a difference too. 
because that's where power comes from is, is getting people together who all care about the same thing. And you might not realize they all care about the same thing when you start, but it's conversations with your neighbors, with your friends about what's important to you. Um, it's starting to talk about this issue and paying attention to who is, you know, responding and reacting and, and mad about the same things you're mad about and for the same things you're for. And that's huge too. It's not just about being against, it's about being for better world. Definitely the things I've done in organizing that have been the most successful are things that I've done with other people. And they're not always people that I knew at the start or, or that I already knew, but, but branching out and creating these networks has been so powerful and, and really enriching for my life, um, not just for the work. April, do you want to end our interview with the final question? Yes. As the honorary librarian of the group, <laughs> do you have um, anything you've been reading recently that you might recommend to our listeners? Yeah, um, I'm in between fiction books right now, but I've got a lot of nonfiction balls in the air. I'm reading uh, Beyond Survival, which is an anthology of essays on transformative justice. It's another great one for people who are like, okay, abolition seems cool, but really, what are we going to do without prisons? Um, this is a lot of different attempts and, and stories of what people have actually done to try to answer that question in their own community. Um, and I'm actually working through that with the same study group in the Dandelion Network. We're reading one essay every time we meet and talking about it. I'm reading Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief. And it's on the importance of grief and grieving to our social justice movements. And it's important to recognize like what we have lost as we're going along trying to create a better world and dealing with the world that we currently have. Um, that's, that's been a really powerful book. And finally, I'm reading Laziness Does Not Exist by Dr. Devin Price. And it's, I need to read this book because so far I've read it while walking on the treadmill and in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep from stress. So I'm gonna learn all about how to not do that and maybe try not to overburden myself a little bit, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> I tell you, the pandemic has made me slow down. Yeah, I've had kind of the opposite effect. I got an e-reader and now I've unlocked the power to read at night without having bright lights on and it's a game changer for me. That is true. I can read in bed and not disturb my partner. <laughs> uh-huh. In the middle of the I day have when read I've a got lot. that stress insomnia. <laughs> and you can check out books from the library without going to the library. Yes, and at like 10 You're o'clock right. at night. It's yes. great. And it'll automatically return. No late fee. <laughs> no overdue. Well, thank you so much for coming. Julia, thank you for coming back to the pod. It is always nice to hear your voice. Cassie, if you have any pots cooking going forward, come back, give us updates. You are one of the rare experts on this topic that there's just not a lot of advocacy movement that, you know, there's, it just seems so disparate. It's really, I think you were right. It's hard to find somebody kind of at the top of the grassroots, like the grass top, who 
like knows what they're talking about. It's one of those issues where it's like, man, that really sucks. Of course we don't want a new prison. And I can think of a thousand reasons I don't want a new prison, but I, who's working on this? Cause I have questions and I'm so glad that you have answers and you're going to be even more of an expert in six months and in a year. And hopefully we stop the prison. Yeah. And if I can have one plug, a uh, call to action, no new prisons, NEB is on Instagram no new prisons no new prisons neb.com uh if you want to look up our website and we've got a form on there if you want to sign up for future updates all the calls to action will go out to that list great because we need everyone in this fight this thing is winnable but it takes all of us coming together i want to thank you for coming on and i really learned a lot from you me too and i really appreciate the type of volunteering you do. I find it incredibly inspiring. I think it is an incredible level of service to give something to someone who can give absolutely nothing in return. And I think that is the definition of generosity and seeing someone's humanity. And I thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com. Thank you.